<laughs> Great. Well, thank you, um, EJC, for the invitation. Uh, thank you, all guys, for, for coming this morning. I know um, it's early, so um, we hope to make this entertaining and interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about the Panama Papers. The Panama Papers is this investigation that the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, alongside Süddeutsche Zeitung, a German newspaper, and more than 100 media organizations, launched in April 3rd, last April 3rd, and it was the biggest journalism, the biggest leak in journalism history, also the biggest collaboration of journalism history. We're going to talk about how we did it today, and I'm going to introduce the guys in the table in a second. But before we do that, I wanted you to see this video that explains how everything started and settles the conversation. Great. So that is how the Panama Papers started, by a message by an anonymous source um, that uh, two German um, reporters um, got. Um, and of course, are you interested in data? The answer is, of course, right? And um, they received 2.6 terabytes, 11.5 million documents. And instead of keeping it to themselves, they decided to come to the ICIJ, which is a media organization based in Washington, D.C., and uh, that has connections all over the globe. We specialize on cross-border investigative reporting, and we helped Süddeutsche Zeitung build a global team. We worked on these 11.5 million documents for a year. We worked more than 370 journalists from more than 100, organization, 100 media organizations. And we're going to learn about how the work happened today. So let me introduce to the people in the table. Uh, we'll have Juliet Garside joining us in a second. But for now, the person right in the middle of the table is my boss, a great person, uh, Gerard Ryle, uh, the director of the ICIJ. He joined the ICIJ in 2011. He's Irish, but he lived and developed most of his professional life in Australia, and um, he's uh, the person that has been leading the organization since then, the uh, leader uh, behind the uh, Panama Papers, uh, alongside project manager Marina Walker, uh, who's in Washington right now, and he's going to talk to us about how the collaboration happened. Um, just uh, joining us this very minute, Juliet Garside from The Guardian. Um, she is a business reporter, but was tasked with this uh, big task of leading the investigation at The Guardian. And uh, we had a great collaboration with The Guardian. Um, 
in many previous investigations, but especially I would say in this one. Uh, so she's going to talk to us about how they did it, how they worked internally, and uh, what were the stories they did, and also how they collaborated with a different media organization uh, in the other side of the table, uh, the BBC. James is going to talk to us about um, the work they did at the BBC. As you saw, many of the key, uh, well, actually the main aspect of the Panama Papers, on top of being uh, such an interesting story, is that we collaborated. It's basically, in my opinion, the journalism of the present, but especially of the future, with um, you know, newsrooms shrinking, with newsrooms not investing in investigative journalism, with newsrooms not investing in international reporting, joining forces is the best way to do such a powerful story like this one that exposed how the offshore system worked. So we're going to learn about these three media organizations, and I'm going to um, let, give the word to Gerard then so he tells us um, how we did things. Sure. Hi, everyone. Look, this all began for us at ICIJ with a phone call from... Excellent. Okay. Not so dramatic. Um, so it began with a phone call, basically, from Bastian Obermeyer. He was a reporter who got contacted by the anonymous source. We had actually been investigating Mossack Fonseca, which is the company where we got all the data from. We'd been investigating them for a few months. So, and it turns out, of course, that the source had been basically trying to get a hold of the media for a while and had been turned down by a number of other media organizations. Bastian had just written a story about Mossack Fonseca, and that's why he got the, the contact. Um, shortly after he got a hold of the, of the first three million documents, he actually made a phone call to ICIJ, and I got on a plane to Munich. I went over and saw he and Frederick Obermeyer, his, his co-partner, and we looked through the initial documents for about three or four days, and at the end we basically sat down with their bosses and agreed that we would build a big media collaboration with this. Um, my next stop was London, where I came actually to see The Guardian and the BBC, because it's very important with these kind of collaborations to sign up partners as soon as you can. They were, of course, very interested, so we had our first two media partners, and it built from there. Now, Mark, can we just move on to the... This is what the documents look like. I mean, we've been involved in a number of other offshore um, stories over the last few years, and you can see the size of the documents compared to our previous investigations. We've been doing, in 2013, we did a thing called Offshore Leaks, which was at the time the biggest um, leak in history, but of course dwarfed by this one. We can also, you might remember the, the um, Luxembourg Leaks investigation, which led to a lot of um, angst in Europe. And this time last year, we were actually working with the BBC and The Guardian on a thing called the HSBC story, which is a Swiss leaks. Um, but again, you can see the size of the data compared to this. So the first big challenge we had was actually with Mar and her team, is how do you make this readable for journalists? And uh, basically what she did in the end, and her team did, were that they employed a lot of, um, of, of servers, basically, to try and index this material. If we had, I think at one point, if we had um, tried to do it I think just using one machine, it was going to take a year just to index the first three million documents. And of course, as it happened, more and more data started coming in. So by the end of the year, by the end of 2015, we had 11.5 million documents. So it grew from, 11, or from three to 11.5. Um, so in order to do this kind of collaboration, you have to do a few things. This is our um, iHub, which is basically our virtual newsroom, which again, Mars team built. So every day we expected every reporter who was working on the project to go into their physical newsroom, but also to go into this virtual newsroom. And there they had to share everything they learned. That was the important part of this. Every time you saw something, even if it wasn't relevant to what you were doing, you had to share it with all of your colleagues. 
The second thing we built, again, oh, on the iHub too, you can also share documents. It was very important for us at the beginning, because it was an anonymous source, and we knew we might be criticized for this, that we had to go outside the documents to prove that they were real. So if there was a company in Bermuda, you had to go to Bermuda to make sure it was a real company. And, and if you, you know, came across something that was involved in a court case, what happened here in the virtual newsroom is you could upload the documents and share them with your colleagues as you went along. Um, the second thing that was built was actually a search tool, which again, you know, Mars team built. Because we wanted to make sure that every reporter working for this collaboration basically had access to every document. So we weren't holding anything back and no one was thinking that we were deleting names as we were going along. So this was something that needed to be accessible from everyone's laptop around the world. So all of the documents are put on a cloud, piped down over the internet into people's um, laptops or, or computers in their work. And the third thing was this amazing tool, which um, one of our uh, programmers built, which is basically built on a, a program called Lincurious, where every name and every uh, address and everything we could do, we just turned into nodes. So you could actually work backwards on the research. So you could go from, from A to Z, and then as a journalist, go back through the documents and, get, and basically find your path. This was very useful later on when we were turning everything into graphics. Okay, so I'm brushing because I'm told I have to rush. Eventually, after about a year of working on this, and by the time at that stage, we'd built uh, 370 journalists working on These were the front pages of some of the stories. You can see The Guardian, Trau, Süddeutsche, Trau is a newspaper in Holland, and of course, Mami Herald, we worked with the McClatchy Group in America. And this is the impact of the story. I mean, this is actually a photograph of the Icelandic parliament, and you can see it's been surrounded by people. We had actually gone to the Icelandic prime minister three weeks beforehand, and he'd been trying to spin the story to make it sound like it was an old story, but of course, after we published, this was what happened the day after. And a few hours later, he had to resign. And that was the beginning of a number of resignations and other impact around the world. This wasn't the only public protest. There were a number of them. Um, yes, now, today, what we did last week, again, with Mars team, is we put all the basic information, which are the names, addresses, and the company names, up on a publicly searchable database. And as you can see, that's already now spinning off new stories. I think um, the Harry Potter star yesterday was the big one. Um, but there are other ones today. For instance, the um, Australian Prime Minister um, was in the data, which, of course, we had missed initially. So basically, this is all from crowdsourcing. And I'll end there and pass over to Judy. Great. But, Gerard, let me ask you something. What would you say are the main revelations of the Panama Papers? Why is the Panama Papers important? I think the biggest revelation for me was always the politicians. We found 12 current and former world leaders and about 140 politicians around the world. And this was a very deliberate decision we took early in the, in the, in the research because, again, to try and counter any perception uh, about the anonymous source and why this was important. It was very important for us to demonstrate public interest in the story. Um, we could have gone after the banks. There were like 500 banks in there. As far as Mossack Fonseca were concerned, their clients were not the end user of the companies. They were actually the big accountancy firms, big banks that were their clients. And in some cases, they didn't even know who the end client was. Um, so I think for me, it's the fact that a lot of these public leaders, such as David Cameron, had been publicly uh, against tax havens, and yet you were able to show that they themselves in some way were involved. In David Cameron's case, of course, it was his father. So the ICIJ has been working with The Guardian for several years. I think that the biggest thing we did uh, was our first leak in investigation on, uh, on the offshore world, which is the uh, offshore leaks. We published it in April 2013. Funny enough, we published April 3rd, 2013, and then 
Panama Papers, April 3rd, 2016, but I have to say that <laughs> that was just coincidence that we realized the uh, time afterwards. And since then, The Guardian has been a great champion of um, the ICIJ work. And I'd have to say, having The Guardian on board always helps when convincing others around the world uh, to join our investigation. So, Juliet, how did you work with us this time? Um, well, it, it, was, it was brilliant to be, to be asked to join this particular project. Um, the impact of the previous ones had been getting successively bigger. So um, the Guardian had, had, as Mar said, worked on the first offshore leaks three years ago. And since then, uh, other journalists on the paper had worked on Lux leaks, um, which caused a huge foray and I think was responsible in the end for sparking several tax investigations by the European Commission. And then, can you hear me at the back? Good. Um, and then uh, last year, in, in February last year, um, we published uh, the Swiss Leaks um, story, which I think was at the time the, the biggest collaboration in terms of other media partners that the ICIJ had done. And the impact was huge um, around the world um, and really set the scene for the Panama pa Papers in terms of, I think, for me, you know, one of the major strands is the UK's nurturing of a, of a, a large... Um, cash of tax havens, a third of the world's uh, most important tax havens, um, are UK jurisdictions. Um, so, so we were very excited. Um, I first came onto the project in about August, um, having done uh, Swiss Leaks before that. Um, and I knew this was going to be good when I saw an email, an internal email, from a Mossack Fonseca employee saying, this is, this is the fifth inquiry we've had from the BVI regulator this year. Have we got any kind of indemnity against prosecution? Um, so even staff at the firm were extremely worried about what little they actually knew of uh, the, the, the ultimate end clients that they, they were dealing with. Um, so how did we organize? Well, um, for us, this, this wasn't only the biggest collaboration that we've ever been part of. Um, I mean, I think there were three, three to 400 journalists around the world, over 100 media organizations working on this. But it was the best collaboration, and it was the biggest collaboration internally among Guardian staff, I think, that I've been involved with. So we, had, uh, we, we brought together an initial core team, uh, three or four reporters. Um, a, a key part person in that team at the beginning was Helena Bengtsson, uh, who's an ICIJ member and um, whose expertise is in um, cross-matching databases. Um, so we ran, uh, we had um, over 200,000 company names and many more shareholder names to check. We were looking, we, we cross-matched those with lists of MPs, members of the House of Lords, rich lists, sanctions lists, um, and a really big list for us, us which was UK property owned by offshore companies. Helena would uh, set up a program running in the evening, leave, leave the computer on all night, and in the morning we'd come in and get the results. Um, and once we had names, you know, you'd dread seeing the name, you know, Simon Jones. Um, you'd, be, you'd try and check out whether the person involved was, was, was a person of interest. Uh, so it was, it was from these lists, really, that we began our, our work. And I, I kind of I described the database, these 11 million documents, as a bit like trying to get the sweets out of a giant piñata. You know, you've got to hit it with lots of multiple sticks um, and from different angles. Um, so on sports, because there were some big sports stories, we had our, our chief sports writer, Owen Gibson, um, on Putin's money, 
and Ukraine. Uh, we had Luke Harding, who's the Guardian's foremost Russia expert and had been kicked out of, of Russia a few years previously for writing about Putin's money. Um, uh, we had uh, Simon Bowers, who'd worked on LuxLeaks um, and is, is a, a great expert in tax and fraud. Um, and we had Holly Watt, who'd come from the Telegraph newspaper where she'd worked on MPs' expenses. So she looked at the donors and she looked at celebrities as well. Um, so it was, it was a big collaboration internally. Um, and we, we, we brought in our, our data and graphics teams and interactives teams as early as we could and video, etc., to try and make sure that the story kind of sung in, in, in print, online, visually, in all, all the different ways it could be expressed. Um, and, and the impact's been tremendous. And I have to say that the summit that's taking place at Lancaster House um, on the other side of town today, uh, the anti-corruption summit, has been fantastic for keeping this story alive uh, here in the UK for a whole month. So, Julia, you not only managed to get collaboration, or I've never seen collaboration inside The Guardian that well intricated, um, you also collaborated with the BBC. How did that, how did that work? Well, um, so that's a relationship that um, had also developed on previous ICIJ projects as well as other projects. And um, so James Oliver, who's the Panorama producer uh, who worked on the Panama Papers program, um, had previously worked really closely with us on uh, Swiss Leaks uh, and, and, uh, and other ICIJ projects. So there was a, a, a large amount of trust, which is important there, and it was trust around crediting each other when it came to publication, linking through to each other's coverage, helping build uh, an audience uh, for the Panorama program and, and the BBC and its huge website referring traffic back to The Guardian. And it, it, it creates a sort of feedback loop uh, when you have more than one media organization in the UK. I think The Guardian really struggled to get other media to pick up the Snowden story, which you know, obviously had huge resonance around the world. And in the United States, there were a number of other newspapers involved. But in the UK, there was no broadcaster. There was no other newspaper. And, and it was reported pretty much only in The Guardian. Um, so so we, there was a lot of trust there. Um, and we, we shared um, uh, our findings um, as openly uh, as we could. We shared everything we thought would be of interest with each other. We shared early drafts and scripts drafts of scripts, etc. Um, and we tried to make sure that we were doing the same things on the same day, but that was done also more widely within the ICIJ for the major subjects, which I think Gerard and Mark can talk about. But for here in the UK, the Cameron story, it was really important that we coordinate on that because um, we, didn't, we didn't want to try and scoop each other. We didn't want, and we wanted to release it at a time when it would get maximum attention. So the Panama Papers launched with Putin and with the Icelandic Prime Minister. And that story launched at, uh, I think it was 7 p.m. UK time on Sunday the 3rd of April. And then around mid-afternoon on the Monday um, is when we decided to release uh, the story about Blair Moore, David Cameron's father's offshore fund. And we did that jointly with the BBC. There was some debate about whether it should have been on the 10 o'clock news the night before, but we, we held fast. And, and I think the impact was... Uh, much larger because of that. 
Great. So we are going to hear from the BBC whether that worked so well, <laughs> which I'm sure uh, it did, actually. Uh, we have James. It's not James Oliver, the person in the program. It's another James. Uh, James Melly, if I got it correct. That's right, yeah. Uh, and um, James um, worked on the um, BBC radio programs. The BBC also had internal collaboration, uh, also pretty... Um, unusual internal collaboration between television, panorama, and the radio. So um, how did you work on those stories between you two and inside the BBC? Well, I, I think it helps if you consider the BBC like a, a whole series of different uh, providers. So at the time I was working at Radio Current Affairs, Panorama is TV Current Affairs. And so usually when you're working on a big exclusive story, you do so separately. Yeah? And, and you probably wouldn't share the information with the other people because, you know, essentially you don't want to be scooped by, by one of your colleagues. And so this project kind of went against almost every instinct that you have as a journalist. Like you want to, you want to keep everything for yourself. But in order to get the best out of it, it was clear that you had to collaborate. I mean, when I came onto this project, it was July, and um, I was working on a, a different program, and my editor ran over to me. He was clearly very excited and he said, James, can you go to Belfast for two months? And I, I thought about it, and I, really, I couldn't really think of a reason why I couldn't go to Belfast for two months, even though it would, wasn't really my first choice. Um, so I said, yeah, sure, of course, why? And he said, well, there's, there's this, this big project, and um, they need somebody who knows a bit about offshore. I'd done a bit of work about offshore tax havens um, the year before. So off I went to Belfast, and um, without really knowing what, what I was getting into. And, and to be fair, I don't think my editor also really knew. I was just being sent over to see if there was anything in this. And I think it's fair to say there was. Um, so I went over, and I was given access to the, to the, the, the database of the project. Uh, I mean, the scale of it was enormous. I've, throughout my career, I've handled leaked documents, but... I think up to this point, the most I've ever personally had to deal with is a few hundred. Um, when you're presented with, as, as it was at the time, about three or four million, I mean, it obviously went up to 11 and a half million. It, even, even at the early stage that I went in, there was so much stuff, it was incomprehensible. I mean, at first I thought, okay, I'll, as I'm sure all of you would have done the same, just go through every dodgy person you've ever come across and search for them. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'll go for every politician I can think of, starting with the dodgy ones and then working way through. Um, crime families, celebrities, sports people, even with the limited amount of data that was available compared to what ultimately was available, every one of these searches came up with something interesting, even if it wasn't necessarily directly the person that I was looking for. So then it became a question of how do you what do you do with this information? Is it inherently bad that somebody was dealing with Mossack Fonseca? It wasn't abundantly clear that that was the case. I mean, it, it may well be that the people who had these accounts may well have been doing everything by the book. But, I mean, there are moral arguments about using tax havens, of course. Someone is losing out on tax revenue wherever, but we set our bar for doing stories at um, serious wrongdoing, illegality often, um, sanction evasion. And the really helpful thing about the, 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 the collaboration is that while you're sort of swimming around in this ocean of data, there are people, very, very qualified people, who've also been doing exactly what you're doing and then sharing their information on this forum. 
And so you could check against people from different parts of the world. They'd all been looking at their own different countries, their own different dodgy politicians, their own different crime families, and so on, and then feeding this information back. Uh, so it was an excellent point to sort of guide us. Quite early on, I think it was identified that um, sanction evasion was something that um, Mossack Fonseca's was facilitating um, by hiding the identity of uh, the, the people setting up accounts. Um, that seemed to me like a pretty fertile area to, to plow. Um, the real breakthrough for me came sort of November time, I think. Um, I wasn't able, unfortunately, the, the, the nature of it was I wasn't able to work full-time on it. There was, there was three or four people at Panorama that were working full-time on it, and I was basically doing it in my spare time weekends. My girlfriend hated it. Uh, Christmas, it was a particularly, particularly useful thing to get me through a difficult Christmas. Um, the, the, uh, so November time I was searching through and I, I'm quite interested in North Korea. I was doing some searching in North Korea. A search for just for North Korea leads you to thousands of documents, most of which aren't that useful really. Um, I won't go into the detail of why, but they, they, they just weren't relevant. Um, it was only when I added nuclear to it, so North Korea and nuclear, that I found um, uh, a guy called Nigel Cowie, who's a British banker. And he, he'd ran what ultimately became a, a sanctioned bank in North Korea. Um, he then set up a, a company in the British Virgin Islands through Mosfon uh, called DCB Finance, and that was ultimately sanctioned by the U.S. for... Um, uh, for laundering funds back into the, um, the North Korean nuclear program. I was, so, I, was, I was shaking with excitement when I found this. This was, this was the best. And I went on the forum and realized someone had actually found it ages before me. <laughs> <coughs> but, you know, um, I swallowed my pride <laughs> and, and carried on. Um, we also looked at um, Rami Makhlouf, the Syrian Assad's bagman, and... Um, Alan Mubarak, the son of Hosni Mubarak, um, convicted fraudster in his own country. We, as the only, I think this is right, the only international broadcaster that was working on the project, we had to look at stories from around the world for the radio stuff that we did, uh, a concern that I don't think Panorama necessarily had when they were doing their stuff. I think the unusual for us, uh, I mean, I, I saw this... Uh, I saw this on a few forums when discussing the Panama Papers and the BBC coverage. Just before my program went out, I saw someone say, I'm not going to listen to this because it will just be the same as the Panorama program. And we consciously tried to, to, to do a, like a whole BBC thing where the Panorama program would summarize the findings and they'd look at their own specific case, which was the Russian stuff, and which there was a lot of collaboration with The Guardian, I know. Then you will have seen all the news rollouts of the stuff that was in the bulletins. When we bought the, the news teams on board, which was quite late in the day, but we'd already got together a lot of the information. Um, myself, the Panorama people, and a couple of other people that I was working with within my department. And we gave bits and pieces of stuff we'd already found to the news people. And again, the, the Guardian were very helpful with that. Um, so yeah, my program was specifically about sanctions. The Panorama program was specifically uh, was about UK people in there and the Russian uh, stuff. And then everything kind of flowed from there. I mean, I would not, would not have predicted that Blairmore would have become the, the big story. The Cameron stuff would have become the big story 
for us here. Um, and that might seem, may seem incredibly naive, but when, when we initially looked at it, uh, it felt like a lot of that stuff had already been exposed in actually previous ICIJ leaks. Um, but it was the, the way that Number 10 reacted that made it a story that, that I mean, still really hasn't gone away. Um, that and the, uh, the, uh, the conference that's happening, as Juliet mentioned. So that's how, that's how it all worked. I mean, from my perspective, because James Oliver did a lot of the, the work with The Guardian, everything ran incredibly, wonderfully smoothly. Um, uh, looking at the, the way that the forum worked, you would, you would have within that, there was groupings of people who were interested in specific things. So when I, was, when I became interested in sanctions, I joined the little sanctions group, and there was discussions and updates and stuff put in there. But there are all kinds of stuff, like um, there, was, uh, there's a, there was a one on um, drug cartels, for example, uh, one on terrorist finance, for example, and so on and so forth, politicians. All very interesting, uh, all with, I think one of the most astonishing things for me was the, the, actually the caliber of a lot of the journalists that were on this. It was actually quite humbling. Um, astonishing journalists in Germany, um, Argentina. No, it was great. So... It's been genuinely um, one of the best things I've ever worked on, probably the best thing I've ever worked on, um, even though it feels like the hard work was done by basically everybody else. Well, thank you, James. I'll send you the check later uh, <laughs> for speaking so well about this investigation. I, I have to say um, one thing that I kept asked a lot and that I, it popped into my mind while you were talking is, oh, my God, you had a small team, but you then had to deal you know, disseminate information within your organization, but this was kept a secret mm. for a year. How did you keep it a secret inside the BBC? Uh, well, well, actually, the ICIJ had some very good guidelines on, on, on what you couldn't say to people. So you couldn't mention leaks, for example. You couldn't mention ICIJ. You obviously couldn't mention Mossack Fonseca or Panama or whatever. But actually, once you excluded all those things, there was quite a lot of things you could talk about. So, for example, um, I would just say, oh, I'm just working on this, um, this offshore project. And that was usually enough because basically a lot of people don't really understand offshore finance. And so they just, <laughs> they just leave you be. Um, but, I mean, when it, on the day that we had, on the, on the Sunday, so I came in to work on this. I was actually finishing off my, my programs on the Sunday. My program went out on the Tuesday uh, evening. Uh, and I came in, and I was in for 7 p.m., which was the, the global embargo when it was lifted. And watching the BBC actually kick in at that point was, 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 was pretty cool. Um, we'd started briefing the news teams, I think it was about six weeks. James Oliver and I briefed the news teams about six weeks in advance, and they had no idea what was to come, really. Um, it, we'd, I mean, there, there was, as part, of the, as part of the project, we had to keep things secret. Um, which, as I say, was, was kind of against almost every instinct that you have as a journalist. Um, when we started telling people about it, their natural instinct was, oh, can I, get into the, can I get into the database? No. Can I search for my project in the database? I mean, you can, but there's very, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a document that says, I did terrible things. What you'll likely find is a series of emails or a series of statements, and you'll have to do a lot of work around it to make anything interesting from it. Um, so once we dealt with the initial uh, enthusiasm, it was about 
telling them what we'd actually stockpiled. We'd, we'd, um, Panorama and I put together um, a big pile of, of shared documents, of almost complete stories, basically, so that it was ready to go. But, of course, The Guardian had got their own stories, and the, there was the stuff shared in the forums. So we kind of gave people a, a, a menu, if you like, and, and let them pick which, which bits they wanted to do. And then we disseminated that around the BBC. So the sports people had the Infantino story, uh, the FIFA UEFA story. Um, the China desk had the uh, Politburo stories, and so on and so on. You know, the BBC is a vast organisation with with enormous numbers of people who specialise in in areas that were covered in the in the, in the papers. And so we just tried to, to distribute it. I mean. There were points where we didn't do as much as we could, like the Africa service, for example. We didn't give them as much as they wanted, but that's simply because we just didn't have the resources to do it as, as, as well as we would have liked. Uh, I mean, there's still tons of stories on Africa that haven't been told that are in the, in the papers. So, as you can see, there are still many stories to be told, not only the stories we can tell, um, having access to the 11.5 million documents, also the stories you can find going to offshoreleaks.icij.org, which has information on the companies from the Panama Papers, basically 200,000 200, offshore companies in around 21 jurisdictions and the people behind them. Uh, we'll be talking more about that at 5 p.m. today and also about talking a bit more about how you can use the data with the example of Helena Bengston that Juliet just mentioned of like how can you discover who owns um, British property when they own it through an overseas um, company. But for now, we want to open up the floor to you to hear what questions do you have so that we can answer them. So, any questions? How are we going to do it with the mic? Is somebody going to... So, if the mic is there, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, it's a question of resources. And obviously, both of your organizations put a certain amount of resource into this. Do you feel they realized just what the opportunity was and whether you had enough resources? I know we live in a limited world. Yes, I think we did have enough resources. I think we, we'd had enough ex good experiences with previous ICIJ projects to know uh, that this was worth putting a lot of effort into. Uh, senior people at the paper had seen uh, some of the material. Um, so, so, so yes, we did. I mean, you could always have more, I suppose. Um, uh, more time, more resources. Um, but no, it, it, it was... You know, I, I actually felt very proud... Um, to be at the Guardian, you know, we had four, four or five journalists working on this pretty much full time uh, for seven months, and I, I can't think of many other newspapers um, that would, would put in that kind of resource. Uh, similarly, I mean, I, I suppose the question is more: Did you think we had enough resources? I mean, was was the coverage lacking? Do you think, or, or I mean, from from my perspective, um, it, of course, it would have been nice to have even more. I mean, it, it would have been nice to have, in one foul swoop, have done every possible story that was in there somehow. But, I mean, th that's, that's almost impossible. 11.5... I, I, someone estimated it would take one person about 20 years just to read all of the documents. Um, so I don't... I, I think you could have had... You could definitely have had as many resources... You, you could definitely have had more resources, definitely, absolutely. And then you would definitely have been able to do a bigger, better job. Um, I suppose the issue then would have been, I mean, there were a lot of stories that came out in one week. 
Um, and it could be argued that some better stories were swamped by stories that somehow grew legs, like the, like the Blair Moore story. Um, so would, would, would there have been an advantage to having that? I don't know. I suppose you could have done two weeks, three weeks. Then would people have got bored of it? I don't know. Do you want to say? Oh, uh, in terms of resources, well, we're a nonprofit, so we're always struggling. <laughs> um, uh, we basically, we're, we're a tiny organization. We've got a 12 people. We had about 15 working on this story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the battle for me was always convincing Süddeutsche Zeitung to give us more time. Because when we first came to us with the story, and um, when I was in Munich having those initial discussions, they actually wanted to publish the story within about three months. And so I was horrified, and so was Bastian and, and Frederick. And so we had this battle behind the scenes to get more and more time. Um, one thing I didn't mention because of the shortness of time, we actually met in person in various places. Our first meeting was in, in Washington, um, and that was really a delay meeting. It was a, a way of delaying Sudeutsche so that they get to buy us more time. We had a second meeting in Munich, and I think it was at that meeting in, was it November? September. September, September in, in Munich that really convinced the bosses at Sudeutsche that we needed more time because we had a hundred and something odd journalists from around the world, and we... <laughs> Our tactic was to get every one of them to introduce themselves in a room. So you can imagine, it took about an hour for everyone to introduce themselves. But it was amazing. You could see the bosses there, their eyes popped open as, you know, Kath Viner, the editor, the new editor-in-chief of The Guardian was there. So was, was Paul Johnson, the deputy editor. We had editors from around the world. And it, for them, it was like their moment had arrived, and they realized at that point that this needed to be done properly. So it was at that point that we got an extension to the following year. Um, and so, yeah, um, and with time, as you know, with, when you're an investigative reporter, the biggest resource you can have is time. Being able to do this full time was very important, and to get that extra few months was, was incredibly important for us. I would say just that, that one of the key things that I like about ICIJ, and of course I'm biased because I work there, but I think that one of the main things that we do is we have, we create a big international newsroom that collaborates with each other. I would say, I always try to say that we're kind of like the, um, and we're in the London School of Economics, so the, you know, collaborative economy uh, applied to journalism. Um, so basically, you know, the Guardian would bring their team of how many, how many people did you have in the end? Full time, five, I guess. Five people. The, the Guardian brings five people, which are not enough to deal with all the documents about the whole world. But then the BBC brings their four people we have 12 people on staff, and then we bring some more people on board. Le Monde brings, and so on, so on, so on. And all of a sudden, we are more than 370 journalists working together on the same story. And that's our full power, is that each of us, each of our media organizations, bring their resources so the cost is distributed, and, and uh, we all join forces to have a big newsroom. I don't think any media organization would be able to put more than 370 journalists uh, to work on the story. And I think that's the, the great value of our model. So there are questions here. So could you give it there? Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Anne Moilanen, and I'm a Finnish journalist. And in Finland, we have one media that uh, got access to Panama Papers. So it's Wiley, our national broadcaster. And in Finland, we have ended up in this unbelievable situation that the police is demanding access to the, to the leak and to the information, and also tax authorities. And I ju just Googled it, and it's actually a Finnish finance minister as well who has been applying, I mean, saying in public that uh, uh, Wiley should give this information 
which they obviously cannot do. But uh, have you heard that in, in any other countries there would be this kind of situation? And what do you think about this? Um, well, it's, the only, I, it's not the only country that's been looking for the data. We've, we've also been put under a lot of pressure in, in the U.S. from a number of, almost every tax agency in the world has been asking us, um, including the HMRC here in, in Britain. Um, what we're, I mean, it was very important for us, I think, uh, was it two weeks ago, the source came out publicly and, and issued a manifesto saying that they would be willing to work with governments, um, but of course made the point that every whistleblower um, who who's been in this situation before, has been dis their lives have been destroyed. So, I mean, it kind of highlighted the whole issue of, um, sure, it's okay to work with governments, but in order to do that, you've got to come out publicly. Um, I think that that manifesto was probably going to alleviate, alleviate, hopefully, some of the pressure. I mean, I think it's a disgrace what's happening in Finland, to be frank. Um, uh, it shouldn't happen. And, and the thing is that, you know, we can cut off access to the data so the journalists don't actually have anything. So the moment that they come through the front door... Um, we have a plan in place. Um, but it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's not the only place where it's happening. We did have um, a bit of arm twisting here in the UK from both uh, HM Revenue and Customs, the tax office, and uh, the National Crime Agency, uh, both of whom wrote to the editor requesting sight of the data. There was, there was a follow-up letter from HMRC. There was a phone call from the NCA. Um, and actually, it was only after, I think, we went to a briefing um, in Westminster for MPs uh, where we mentioned um, that uh, Mossack Fonseca has a representative office here in the UK that had managed 2,500 of the companies in the data, some of whom had been sanctioned, and that they had, you know, that if they wanted to get primary information about what was happening inside Mossack Fonseca, all they had to do was drive down to Hitchin um, with a search warrant. And, and knock on the door, um, yeah. something which, which the UK authorities have yet to do. Um, and uh, so the next day, the, the Green um, leader, Caroline Lucas, uh, asked uh, David Cameron at Prime Minister's Questions why no one had been down to Mossack Fonseca UK, and was he not concerned that uh, the longer they waited, the more databases were being wiped and documents being shredded. Now, I have no idea if they're doing that, but, but this is what was said in Parliament. And at that point, we were left alone. Great. So uh, there are some more questions? Yeah, if you can get three, two to yes, three questions. That's better. Time. Hello. These are two small technical questions for Jared. Um, the first is, which companies supplied your cloud services that you referred to um, briefly. Um, and secondly, a rather more wide-ranging one, which you might like to use to make a statement to this sort of audience. Uh, you'll be entirely aware that there's been a certain amount of counter-spin from um, Russia Today, but not only from Russia Today, about yourselves as an institution and the Center for Public Integrity and the ownership thereof and, 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 and. I'd love yeah. to hear your comment on that. Great, so let's, yeah. let's get a couple more questions. Sure, okay. Could you pass it the microphone here? Here on the, the girl in pink. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my question is, do you use any blockchain technology within your organizations? Uh, do you use any of the Ethereum of the DAOs of the cryptocurrencies as a decentralized public network uh, for you to organize uh, w within your news organization, within blockchain again? 
I don't understand what did you understand? No. If we use what? Uh, blockchain. If you don't understand blockchain, the answer is no. No, Let's but then that. could you describe uh -huh. it? Because maybe we did, in different part of the world we say we explain it differently. What do you? What are you talking about? Uh, uh, blockchain is uh, is a technology that decentralizes most of the information that goes within a. Uh, uh, within the network, so within journalism, you could use it to upload information and uh, avoid it from it being uh, misguided or change uh, because you use public and private keys. Okay, um, I can I can address that. Perfect. Cheers. Uh, and the other question? Uh, I was just going to ask if you could speak a little bit more about how you um, managed the conversations between journalists in the forum. Maybe was it just a kind of free for all? I'll just post what I put there, or did you manage the information that they were putting on the forum as well? Okay. Great. So, do you want to start, Jared? Yeah, sure. I'm going to let Mar talk about what cloud services we use because she's the head of data and she knows more than I do, believe me. I can barely turn on a mobile phone. Um, uh, in terms of the Russia Today thing, I'm assuming you're talking about the allegations or the kind of crazy conspiracy theories that are out there that this was a... Look, a week before we published, after we'd sent questions to... Um, people who are very close to Vladimir Putin because, I mean, one of the major stories that came out was about $2 billion were being washed through offshore accounts linked to people close to Putin, basically, including the godfather of his child and also a company that was uh, um, basically owned a ski resort where his other daughter got married. Um, and they actually had a press conference, which was fantastic for us because it gave us a week of publicity before we'd even published, where they were basically came out and, and, and said that this was a conspiracy of the West against Russia and other things. And then, of course, after that, after we published, they were happy that we'd, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to make sure that David Cameron um, and his father was in our first story on day one was to counter that and to make sure that we had lots of uh, leaders from the West, including, the, say, the, the leader of Ukraine, um, to basically counter it. But, I mean, it, it's kind of laughable when you come to Washington and see how small we are and how little money we have. It was kind of flattering to think that we could actually be part of a conspiracy. Because the reality is we, we, we basically rely on donations to keep going. Um, and our budget's about, what, 1.8 million. We get money from various foundations around the world. Most of the money actually comes from Europe, from, from organizations here in, in London and also in Holland. Uh, we get some money from Australia, from a, a billionaire over there or a millionaire over there. Uh, we basically barely survive. I mean, uh, we had to let three of the contractors go the moment we published. We barely got over the line in terms of, of, of finance and we're still struggling financially. I basically overspent the budget, and I'm now in trouble, as we had a discussion this morning about it, about how much overspent we were on it. So it, it, for me, it's kind of, I don't want to address it almost because I think it's so laughable. Um, but I, also, what I really like now is that someone else had a conspiracy theory that it was actually a, a plot by Putin against the West because so many Western leaders were affected. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, what do you do? Yeah, and also Russia Today published things that were wrong. Um, ICIJ does not receive funding from governments, so we do not receive funding from e the U.S. government. I think that there was some spin, in, a spin uh, around um, how some of our partners are funded. We have uh, one uh, media organization that collaborates with us, and it's part of the project, OCCRP. They do receive funding from the U.S. government, USAID. It's public, by the way, because they are a foundation, and it's all public. Their funders is public are public in their website, saying that our funders are public in our website. I encourage you all to see the 990s, uh, which is this form that publishes uh, where our funding comes from. I think that we're much more transparent than many media organizations and their own source of some funding. And I think that in that sense, Russia Today um, spin it 
being not accurate on, on, on those things. Um, just a, a few points that, that address technology. So I'm just going to, um, on the cloud services, uh, we always try to go open source first when we choose on technology uh, for several reasons. One's for the cost, and also the second because we can adapt it. Um, so we do have a, uh, the data team is formed, uh, it's a mixed team of programmers and journalists working together to do data analysis and to build the tools for the collaboration so these guys could connect from Belfast and from London to um, look at, uh, at the data. Um, and we always try to think, okay, what is the issue we're trying to address and how can we address it in the cheapest way possible, of course, and also in a way that we can evolve the technology. So open source is always good. Um, I think that, um, and we rely, we always also think about security and try to think about what is the threat, oops, sorry, what is the threat that we're facing? Uh, early on, we decided that governments were not a threat for this project, so it's not like the NSA, uh, I, the NSA may be interested in this, but in the, in the end, you know, they could be doing things with it, you know, and looking at tax evaders. It's not something against governments or agencies um, that much. Um, so we decided that we could live with things on the cloud. We use Amazon, um, AWS, you know, Amazon Web Services to host most of our um, services. And the technologies used were Oxwell was an open sourced um, social networking tool that we adapted and built s security features around for the forum, for the iHub. Uh, we used Apache Solar uh, as an indexer of the documents uh, along with a front end of Project Blacklight um, that is basically a software built for libraries where you can search the book catalog, but that we adapted for, to search for documents. and. Um, then Lincurious is a proprietary software that we did an agreement with uh, based on a, an open source, Neo for, uh, open source database format, uh, which is uh, Neo4j. So, so those were mostly the, the things that we used. Coming to the technology side, I think on the security side and how our data is, 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 is you know, distributed, I think that um, we've tried to be as secure as possible um, within the means that we have for this project. Um, however, with security, there's always a struggle between usability and security, right? And our main struggle was that um, our users, these guys, are great um, reporters. We have a team of uh, the, among the best investigative journalists in the, in the journalists in the world. But the difference in 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 how tech savvy they are is very wide. On one side, sometimes we do have journalists that are very good at sourcing. They they can get the rocks. If rocks could speak, they could get a rock to speak to them. Uh, but you know they are not very tech savvy. So even you know logging and doing a Skype session with them is is, is challenging. And also you know. Um, you know, then we also have to deal with technology within the newsroom where some newsrooms cannot allow Skype because of the firewall. Uh, and then on the other side, we have very tech-savvy journalists or data journalists like Helena Benson from The Guardian that picks it up quickly and that we can talk. And then I, we have developers working for us uh, in different, you know, working for the project that is like, okay, so could I have an API to look into the documents? Because making searches, you know, I can do something more, you know, uh, advanced, right? So, to, you know, technology and how you deal with such a wide range is, is, is a big issue. Uh, we did not use a distributed system um, this time. Uh, we're looking into possible distributed systems, uh, but I have to say getting our partners to use PGP, just a PGP key 
has been a big challenge, you know. Um, so we're in the process of doing that. We're also in the process of thinking about other security pro protocols, for example, certificates, issuing certificates for access to, you know, to the data. So far, the biggest advancements in terms of security we did is, um, you know, uh, two-step authentication. So basically, uh, the journalists, in order to log into our platforms, would have to log enter username, a passphrase, which is something longer than a password, and then get a code that it gets automatically generated every 30 seconds in their cell phone. So that way there's a way to, um, to go, um, you know, to, to confirm if you have two devices, it's a better way to confirm that it's them. Um, I don't know whether you guys want to talk about anything about how people collaborate in the forum or if that was managed at all, or like how did that work? Um, I, I noticed that uh, having been on it in the forum relatively early in, in July, so that the uh, people came on at various points as, um, as teams grew or different organizations became part of it. And so you'd, you'd have the same kind of burst of enthusiasm that I had where you, you think you found something great, uh, but the chances are it's already been found and put somebody somewhere else in the forum. So there was, a, there, there was points where um, just going into like so you found something and then you think um and then you go into the forum and you, you you'd have to run a search and the chances are it would have been there or someone would have found the start of that um that piece of work the other thing that affected it was that the the data was rolled out in waves and so by the final wave you were, you were still having to essentially start start your your trawl every, anew every time because the you know there was a chance that Mr. C Mr. Crime X or whatever that you search for right on day one, he may well have been added in the data that's further down the line. And so it was extremely helpful to be able to go back into those forums and see that there was little nuggets of information that had been found uh, by other people. But personally, I found rather than the... The forum was very helpful in guiding you down certain paths, but I found that if you found that in that forum there was somebody who'd a journalist somewhere who'd found this this thing and they'd post about it early on. It was always worth just directly communicating with them, which you could do in the forum. Just send them a, a direct message and say, "Hey, did you ever do anything more on that? Where, where did you get to on that?" And that I find that extremely an extremely productive way of working. Um, I thought the forum this time was incredibly well uh, curated and and kind of led. Um, uh, so um, Marina and Gerard and uh, uh, Frederick Obermeyer um, and Bastian Obermeyer from Süddeutsche Zeitung. As soon as someone would post something interesting, um, there'd be a comment uh, from one of these guys saying, "Oh, this is interesting, um, brilliant. Let's, you know, everyone look at this." Um, or, "Oh, uh, so does that mean, you know, in, or querying the data, um, querying the conclusions, asking for more findings, essentially, kind of editing." Uh, the journalists who, who were contributing. So they, they felt recognized and also, uh, you know, challenged to, to, to support what they were posting there uh, to produce more. Um, and, and, uh, and, that, and, and that did also uh, in, encourage people 
to share much more, I think, than perhaps on, on previous projects. I don't know, because I, I wasn't actually allowed to visit the ICIJ forum on, on the previous project I worked on. Um, it did, it did, I can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Um, and, uh, but just, yeah, the amount of collaboration. Um, you know, we, at The Guardian, we tried to make this as international as possible because we, we wanted the tier one names, you know, the Politburo, um, uh, uh, the um, Aliyev's, uh, President Aliyev's family of Azerbaijan. But it's, it's a hard thing to report on from a newsroom in London. So we, we used our own uh, foreign correspondents who helped. Um, but some of them were in difficult positions. So, uh, you know, in China, um, uh, our, our, our correspondent there couldn't be seen to be involved with the story at all, and we couldn't communicate with him. So instead, I, I worked very closely with Alexa Ullison and Karen Chang, who were both working on the project via the ICIJ. And, you know, a lot of what I, the Guardian produced is, th is thanks to them. Um, we worked very closely uh, with Marina at the OCCRP um, on, on the Aliyevs because they'd done amazing work digging, digging into that family for some years. Um, and we couldn't have done it without that kind of collaboration. 